Okay. Well, good morning. Welcome. Thank you guys all for being here this morning. We're continuing on in our series on the book of John today. Uh, we started it, it feels like we just started it, but we've been in it already for a couple months now. We started, of course, at the beginning in John chapter 1, and what we saw in John chapter 1 was that John tells us who Jesus is. He doesn't leave it up to us to decide who Jesus is. He tells us right from the beginning that Jesus is the Word of God. That he is the light of the world, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Rabbi, the Messiah, the Christ. And that's just chapter 1. He doesn't leave it up to us for, to decide who Jesus is. What he leaves up to us is decide how we're going to respond to who Jesus is. So he gives us the lenses through which we have to read the rest of the book of John. Into chapters 2 through 4, we see people coming face to face with Jesus. We see Jesus revealing himself to different kinds of people, to Jews, to Samaritans, to Gentiles. And we see how they respond to who Jesus is. But we finished that section last week, and this week we're getting into a new section of the book, uh, starting in chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. That's where we're going to be today. And what we see in this section as we dive in is we see that the tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders escalates. Tension escalates to outright oppression, outright persecution. And we see that even in the midst of all this persecution, what we see is that Jesus offers us the only true source of hope. Jesus offers us the only true source of hope. So let me go ahead and read this passage like we do every week. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Then at the end we will pray, walk through, dig in, and find out what that hope is. John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going down, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. He answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We believe it's your word. 
And because it's your word, because it came from you, Lord, we believe it is worth our time, worth our effort to labor and long to understand it so that we can believe it, obey it, and delight in you, the God who inspired it. And so I pray, Father, that the truth of this passage would be what we meditate upon. I pray, Lord, that the truth of this passage would change us, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate them to us, that he would work through it in us, Lord. And I pray that we would leave today more in love with you and more dedicated to living for you than we were when we came here today. And I pray, Father, that you reveal yourself so that if we are distracted by anything else in our lives, if we're distracted by what happened before church, what happened last night, what's going to happen after church, I pray that you'd wipe away those distractions. Help us silence our hearts so that we can focus on what you have to say to us today. Speak through this passage this morning, Lord, and change us in the process, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. John 5, verse 1 through 3. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So, John starts his story like he starts many stories. He starts by setting the stage, setting the scene. So if we put the map up here on the screen, Jesus is in the region of Galilee in the north. He's at the town of Cana. And he travels south to the region of Judea, to the town of Jerusalem, because we're told there was a feast of the Jews. We don't know what feast, but we know that that's why he traveled to Jerusalem. What that also tells us is that because of this feast, whatever feast it was, Jews from all over the place were traveling into Jerusalem. It's probably likely that Jerusalem was absolutely packed at this time. So if we put the next slide up, we actually know that the Sheep Gate was on the north side of Jerusalem, right near the temple. So this was taking place by the Sheep Gate at the pool, just by the temple. In other words, it was a time when Jerusalem was packed and it was a place, even in Jerusalem, where a lot of people were probably congregated. There's probably a huge crowd around. And so we're told in the story that when they're at this pool, near the Sheep Gate, we're told that there, were, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Why? Well, we get a little hint at why a little bit later in the passage, but there was this superstition. There was a superstition that from time to time an angel would come and stir up the waters, that the sediment in the waters would be stirred around, and that these uh, lame, blind invalids, when they saw that, if they dove into the water, the first one to touch the water would be healed of whatever made them sick. And this was just a superstition. But this is what caused all of these invalids to decide that they wanted to hang out around this pool. In other words, why they were there was they were there with the desperate hope that they might receive a miraculous healing from the water. Let me say that again. They were there with a desperate hope that they would reveal, they would, sorry, receive a miraculous healing from the water. Let's read on in verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going down, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. 
Jesus approaches this man asking a really silly question. Why do you think he was there? He says, do you want to be healed? And the man answers basically, well, obviously, that's why I'm here in the first place. He was there with the desperate hope that he would receive a miraculous healing from the water. And in fact, his answer points directly to where his hope lay. His answer points to the fact that his hope lay in the pool. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So Jesus, of course I want to be well. Of course I want to be healed, but I'm too slow. I can't get down into the water first. But then Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, verse 9, and took up his bed and walked. So the man was there with the desperate hope that he might receive a miraculous healing from the water. His hope was in the water. His hope was in the pool. His hope was in the superstition that an angel would come, stir up the sediment, and somehow miraculously heal him. But the true place where this invalid could find hope, the true place that he could find healing from his sickness, was standing right in front of him. Jesus was standing right in front of him saying, do you want to be healed? That's where this true hope lay. And with a word, Jesus speaks just like last week, and the invalid is healed. And so yet again, in the book of John, we see another sign. And this sign is meant to do the same thing that all the other signs were meant to do. It was meant to reveal who Jesus was. This wasn't a party trick. There was a lot of people around seeing what Jesus was doing, and this was revealing to them that he was the long-awaited Messiah. In fact, back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, we read that on the day that this kingdom of the Messiah comes, verse 35, verses 5 through 6 says that the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, verse 6. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies. He's fulfilling this one about helping lame men walk in this passage. He's going to fulfill the prophecies of blind men seeing, deaf men hearing at the other places throughout his ministry. But the picture is clear. He was the Messiah. He's the Savior of the Jewish people. He's the Savior of all people. He's the hope of Israel. The man was at the pool with the desperate hope that he might receive a miraculous healing from the water. But his true hope was standing right in front of him. That's the first portion of this passage. But the second half of verse 9, we move on to the next step. So let's go on and read the second half of verse 9 through 13. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. So the Jews saw that this man was healed, and, you know, we don't know for sure if they knew that he was lame before, but I think it's likely. Even just in the fact that he was standing, that he was sitting at a pool right outside the temple, and had probably been there the entire time he was lame. It's likely that these priests, these Jewish leaders, whoever they were, might have known that this was a guy who was lame and who had been healed. But they don't acknowledge it. They don't mention the fact that he had been healed. Rather, what they do is they zero in on the fact that he was carrying 
is not. Because this was a problem for the Jews. This was a problem for the Jews. They took the law very seriously, and it says very seriously, or very clearly in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 8 through 10, through 10 this. God said to Moses on Sinai, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is in your gates. The Jews took this law seriously, not to do work on the Sabbath. Now let's pause for a moment. That's a good thing. The Jews should take that law seriously. God gave them that law. But the question really comes down to this. What is work? What constitutes work? They took this law so seriously that they came up with other laws, other guidelines to help them figure out, basically, what was work. They broke down into 39 different groupings, groupings of deeds of what was work and what was not, what could you do on the Sabbath and what couldn't you do. And when we look at some of the things the rabbis wrote, one of the laws is that you couldn't lift something and carry it to another place. So the Jews saw this man carrying his bed, probably made out of grass or made out of fabric, carrying it to another place. And they were upset with him. They were upset with him for picking up the bed and walking. So they confront him. The man blames this other guy who healed him, but he doesn't know exactly who that other guy is. The story continues in verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now this is kind of an interesting passage. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. It sounds a little bit like karma, but Jesus isn't preaching karma. Jesus isn't saying that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. This is what we have to see very briefly in this one verse. Jesus' miracle was meant to reveal that the kingdom of God was coming. And so what he's saying to this man is, as the kingdom of God is coming, you repent and believe. In other words, sin no more. Live in a manner that's in line with the kingdom that I am bringing. He's not saying so that nothing worse may happen to you in the sense of you might become lame again, but in other words, so that you don't receive the judgment when the kingdom fully comes. He's calling him to repent. He's calling him to sin no more. But in reality, we don't see his response. We don't see how this man responds to Jesus' call to sin no more. Rather, what we see is this man runs off and blabs. He's a snitch. I just, I just want to think about this guy. Dude, what are you doing? I mean, this whole time, Jesus individually seeks you out to heal you. Not because of anything you've done, but purely by his grace. You don't take a minute to learn his name. When they ask you about what you're doing, you point the finger at him. And now, once you figure out who it is, you rat him out. What are you doing? Because after all, this doesn't help Jesus' position with the Jews. It's directly in response to this that the tension between Jesus and the Jews escalates into full-on oppression and persecution. You see that in the next verse. 16 through 18 says this. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things 
on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So in this passage, John gives us two reasons why the tension was rising. He actually says, this is why, two times. And the first one, very simply, flowing directly out of this passage, is that he was breaking the Sabbath. Or rather, he was breaking the Jews' interpretation of the Sabbath law. And this is going to be a theme throughout Jesus' ministry, not only in the book of John, but even if you read the other Gospels. This issue of Sabbath breaking is going to follow him all the way through his ministry until his death. But the interesting thing is that when Jesus is defending himself, the way that Jesus goes about defending himself, explaining why he can work on the Sabbath, exactly leads to the other reason they want to kill him. It gives them another reason to persecute him. It's the reason why they eventually do kill him. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Basically, what he's saying is he's summing up the mission of God, right? That as my father is working until now, so God is working to redeem all things, and I am working, I am joining him in that mission. And what that means is that he's claiming the same prerogative as God. What he's saying is God is working on the Sabbath, so I can work on the Sabbath. And when you take that and couple it with the fact that he is calling God his father, the Jews understood exactly what he was getting at. The Jews understand, understood that he was making himself equal with God. Here at the end of this passage, we get a, a glimpse of this relationship between Jesus and his father. That he's equal with the Father, that he is continuing the work, furthering the mission of the Father, that he bears the authority of the Father, but we're not going to dive into that this week, because in fact, next week, Rob's going to preach, and he's going to walk us into the next passage, and that's really what that's all about, so I don't want to step on Rob's toes, but the other thing that we need to see in this passage, again, as we've seen in the miracles so far, is that Jesus is continuing the mission of the Father. We're seeing that tangibly lived out through his healings, his restoration of what was broken. This was a sign that the Messiah had come, and his name was Jesus. But what I specifically want to think about and look at as we come to the end of this passage is I want to look again at the interaction between Jesus and the, the invalid. Because as I think about this passage, as I read it, it sounds so familiar to me. Jesus was standing right in front of this guy. Jesus, the one who made his body and soul, the one who could heal his body and soul, was offer him, offering him healing purely for no reason but his own grace, saying to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want your great hope to come true? And the man, rather than turning and putting his hope in Jesus, keeps his hope fixed on a lie. He keeps his hope fixed on a silly superstition about sediment in the water. And when I see that, I just, I just want to yell at this guy. Like, are, are you blind? Do you not know that the God of the universe is standing right in front of you? But then I think about it again, and I recognize he's not very different than us. He's not very different than all of us. Because Jesus came into this world offering a broken 
and fallen world true hope. He came into a broken world offering true healing. Healing from sin, healing from death, healing from guilt, healing from shame. Jesus, the God of the universe, stepped down into darkness saying to the world, do you want to be healed? But Jesus, offering that, found that his people, the people of this world, would rather stay in the darkness than come to the light. All have sinned. We know that. All have sinned. All deserve to be judged for that sin. But Jesus alone offers us hope in that sin. By faith in his work on the cross, by faith in his substitution, his bearing of our sin and dying in our place, he destroys our sin. And if you're here today, and if you're putting your hope before God in anything other than Jesus Christ, I want to tell you that just like this man by the pool, you're believing in a lie. You're hoping in a lie. Hope is not found in being really good and going to church and building a successful career, a beautiful family, a big income. True hope is found in the one who's standing right in front of you. The one saying to you, do you want to be healed? The one saying to the world, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is offering you true hope if you will receive it by faith in him and his work on the cross. So if you've never received that hope, I invite you, receive it. I invite you, put your faith in what Jesus Christ has done. But I know that many of us today have received that hope. Many of us today have turned our hope, our eyes, and fixed them on Jesus Christ, the source of our true hope. But I know that for me, even while I've found my hope in Jesus in eternity, on a day-to-day basis, I fail to look to Jesus Christ for my hope. When the storms and the struggles of life hit me, it takes me a long time to turn and fix my eyes on Jesus for my hope. If it's okay with you, I want to share with you a story of something that caught, it took me 17 years to turn and fix my eyes on Jesus for my hope. When I was in third grade, um, when I was in third grade, I was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome. Um, a lot of you don't know this story. It's, it's a painful story in my life. And um, the way that Tourette's works, this is really interesting. Um, it's a bell curve. So it starts showing signs in your life somewhere between second and third grade, and it escalates pretty quickly, fifth or sixth grade. And what that means is that by the time it peaks, by the time it's at its worst, you're right in the middle of junior high. You're at the time of your life where you are least prepared to handle something like a movement disorder. A time of life where the people around you, where your friends, are least prepared to be able to help you with something like that. So it's a really difficult thing to walk through, especially at that time. But for most people, for 80% of people with Tourette's syndrome, by the time you turn 20, this bell curve will continue its course, get a lot better, even out, and be completely gone by your 20th birthday. That's how it typically goes. And so my entire life, as people were asking me, why are you doing that? Or, hey, stop doing that. Or things like this. My hope was set on my 20th birthday. Because when I turned 20, this was going to be gone, and I was going to be free from this. Hope was when I'm, I turned 20. And the good news is, time went on and things got better. I got more control over my tics. I didn't, 
I figured out ways to hide them. The time went on, and I went through high school, and I went to college. There was one night I was on my floor in college. I was 23 at this point. This was past my 20th birthday. And by that, this point, I was really learning to ignore it. <laughs> it had gotten a lot better. It was a lot easier to hide. And I was ignoring it. I was on my dorm floor. Uh, and there was a place where two walls came together. Two tile walls. And where these two tile walls met, it was sharp as a razor. And I was walking down the hallway, and I, I had a tick. I looked over my right shoulder as I was walking and walked directly into the corner of these two walls. I split my head open. It was really, it was really a mess. But there's a couple things with that. Number one, I was so embarrassed. I didn't tell anybody. I walked myself to the hospital 10 blocks away. I didn't want anybody to know. The stitches gave it away the next day, but. <laughs> um, so I was embarrassed. Secondly, it hurt, right, obviously. But the thing that was really, that really rocked me about it was that in that moment, it was evidence, it was proof that the thing I had put my hope in had failed. I was hoping in my 20th birthday that this would be taken away. For 80% of people, it is taken away permanently, forever, with no residual ticks at your 20th birthday. But me on my 23rd birthday, as I have blood coming down my face, it's proof to me you cannot deny it. Your hope has failed you. You are not in the 80%. And while you, not, you might not know now that I have it, if you know what to look for, I still struggle with this. So the next day I went to class. I had the stitches in my head, and my teacher could tell I was not myself. And so she invited me to her office and asked me what was going on. Um, and I told her the whole story and everything that happened. Uh, and she said to me, Ben, God didn't make a mistake when he gave you that. And um, I couldn't hear it. <laughs> I was mad. I was polite, but I was mad. And, um, but that really resonated. I mean, it really stuck. And over the next couple of days, I was wrestling through that thought process. And what I came to realize over the next couple of days as I wrestled with this is that God didn't sneeze as he was forming me and his hands slipped. When God was knitting me together in my mother's womb, he didn't miscount the stitches. The way that he formed me was intentional. And what I know to be true about my God is that he is a good God. That even though he's good, he doesn't take away all sufferings. And that even though this thing has haunted me for 17 years at that point, my good God didn't stop being good for a second when he gave me Tourette's. He didn't stop being good as I walked through that struggle. And what I realized is that my hope was to be set free from it. That was my hope for 17 years, to be set free from it. But I only found hope when I learned to trust God in it. And that was the turning point for me. Because this isn't what I want. I still don't want to have it. I would still be happy if God took it away. But I can trust God in it because he is a good God and he gets me through it. In this trial, I found no true hope until I looked to Christ. And I want to ask you, in the trials of your life, where do you look for hope? When your job is drying up and your finances along with it, how long does it take you to remember 
that you have a God who will never leave you, forsake you, even if your money does. When you're believing lies about your value, how long does it take you to remember that your true value, your true worth, is not found in your bank account, your beauty, your intelligence, your perfection, but in your identity as a beloved child of God who was created in the image of God? When you're in a fight with your husband or your wife and you're desperate to heal your marriage, how long does it take you to turn and put your hope in the one who is able to soften your heart and theirs? When your kids are making stupid decisions, how long does it take you to remind yourself that you are their father, but they have a heavenly father? A heavenly father who will never leave them and forsake them. Be free, I want to ask you to take inventory of your heart a little bit today. Where do you look for hope? When storms come, where do you look for hope? Where other than Christ do you find yourself turning to look for hope in your job, with your identity, in your marriage, with your kids, with your health? What lies are you believing that prevent you from looking to Christ to find your hope? Because be free, Jesus Christ is saying to you, do you want to be healed? And as a response, put your hope in Jesus Christ. Today what we're doing as a family is we're coming together to take communion. And when we take communion, what we do together is we remember the one who has given us hope. He's given us hope uh, not in a way as if we're crossing our fingers, but a sure and a confident hope, a hope that we have. A hope that is without doubt that we know for certain. And we have that kind of hope, not this kind of hope. We have that kind of hope because what he did on the cross is completed. And if you've put your faith in him, if you've trusted in his work on the cross, he has paid for your sins. He has destroyed it. He has set you free from your sins. And you have a sure and confident hope that the life you have now will last for eternity. That's the hope that we have in the gospel. That's the hope that we have because of what Jesus Christ did in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And so if you've put your trust in that hope, if you've received that hope, then I invite you to come take communion with us today as a church family. You don't have to be a part of this local church. You just have to be somebody who has become a part of the universal church, a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, if you haven't put your hope in the eternal life given to us by Jesus on the cross, then I invite you to do so today. But if today is not the day that God is calling you to trust in him, then uh, I ask that you not join us at the table this morning. This is something that the body of Christ does together to celebrate the hope we have in Christ. Finally, if you have young kids, we believe that you know their spiritual state better than we do. So we ask that you would lead them through communion at the time that you believe they're ready to do so. Now I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up and play. Um, Stay at your seat, prepare your heart, but when you're ready, come up receive communion from the elders and return to your seat. And then once everybody's come through, I'll lead us in the communion liturgy and we'll take the bread and the cup together. Will you pray with me?